Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio. Podcast title is The Unpottable Wait. That's what we're here today to discuss. Finally, finally managed to catch up with the Nicolas Cage movie, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. I've been aching to get into that one, but the circumstances have just prevented me. But today, and if you look at that, it's his being John Malkovich, I think. All right, so we're also going to look at the Netflix streaming series Love, Death and Robots. Uh, finally finished streaming the third season of the Netflix animated science fiction anthology series. LDR, Hereafter. And I have survived to tell the tale, and I am Rob Jan. It's mostly a black mirrorish take on robotic slash cyber slash AI technology with a lot of slashing. Doesn't mean it's all killer bots and tyrannical tin cans, no. Though I would be telling fibs if I said it didn't have more than its fair share of it'll all end in tears tales. Actually, I suppose you'd have to do a... I feel like I should be taking a test before I talk about this, like a capture test. You know, I am not a robot or a robot in this case. Do you know those things actually, they don't really so much depend upon you identifying, say, every picture with a motorcycle or a sonic screwdriver or whatnot. They're actually pivoting off the tracking of the mouse. If it's a bit wobbly, then it's probably a human doing it. Oh, (laughs) Still, default cautionary horror setting. Notwithstanding, I have kept returning to LDR because of the notable contemporary and other authors whose stories have been adapted to the screen. Some for the first time, I think. Well, Love, Death and Robots was created by US American filmmaker Tim Miller, whose feature film debut was 2016's Deadpool. He also directed the worthy Terminator Dark Fate and is known for designing the title sequence for The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Thor The Dark World. That was the second Thor movie. Now, across the three seasons of LDR, Miller has personally directed one episode called Ice Age, written and directed two, including The Drowned Giant and Swarm, and written the original story idea for Night of the Mini Dead as well as having a 2005 Academy Award nomination for the short animated film Gopher Broke. (laughs) Miller's LD&R has won three primetime Emmy Awards across three years from 2019 through to 22 for outstanding short-form animated program, amongst other awards too. Now, the 
series is actually a bit of a reboot of Miller and David Fincher's crack at reimagining an animated anthology adaptation of the heavy metal comic book. Remember those? Oh, such high class. <laughs> they were, actually. Well, it's a sort of riff on the, um, the French heavy metal, heavy metal, <laughs> heavy metal hurlant book. A lot of innovative, groundbreaking and often transgressive storytelling in the visual and the literal sense. It was a heavy metal movie in 1981 as well, which is well remembered. And they were trying to adapt that kind of thing to television. They'd been working on this over a decade ago, but until recently they didn't get too much traction on it. Netflix snapped up the concept. And they decided to not relate it to heavy metal, really. Now, the title does say it all. It's usually the stories have got something to do with love, death, and generally, but not always, robots. Uh, there are 35 episodes spread across the three seasons. And yes, Netflix has renewed it for a fourth. Now, you're in an environment stuffed full to bursting with longer-form episode animated series. So many of them. You mostly have to go to franchises like Star Wars and so on to find equivalent anthology shows. I do caveat the, with the uh, the warning that Love, Death and Robots is an adult pitch series, so this is not one for the children. Well, at least not in my admittedly child-free zone opinion. Not the first time that I've wished to have children just so I could ban them from watching something. Did I say anthology, implying standalone episodes? Well, there is actually one paired episode, uh, a couple of those, widely spaced across the seasons, but still, one is a sequel to the other. Season one has a story called Three Robots, and the third season backs it up with a follow-up titled Three Robots Exit Strategies. So there you go. Uh, do you know, <laughs> the strangest thought last night, for no reason, I was just wondering, in the future when our... AI robotic overlords have taken over, or not, as the case may be. I mean, really, looking at all this, would you go, yeah, I want a piece of that? Don't necessarily know. But, I mean, will they look back at all of the media and fiction, uh, movies, television shows, etc., with fake AI in it? Essentially, people dressed up in robot suits or um, masquerading as computers and giving computer <laughs> advice, you know, like uh, Douglas Rain as Hell 9000 or uh, Anthony Daniels playing C-3PO or Kenny Baker as R2-D2. Are they going to look back at all of that and go, you know, that's pretty shameful, that's pretty disrespectful to robots and AIs? It, it, it boggles the mind. I think it could possibly be that way. All right, so season one some of the authors whose works have been adapted to it. And it's not all adaptations of previously written stories. There are a couple of um, ones that they did just for Love, Death and Robots. Uh, Peter F. Hamilton, British science fiction author. John Scalzi from the States. Alastair Reynolds, another Brit. And Michael Swanwick. These are really quite respected names in contemporary science fiction and fantasy. Season two, while they repeated some of those authors' works, but they also introduced Neil Asher, that great uh, author whose science fiction adventure stories uh, remind me a, a lot of um, early Larry Niven. 
Harlan Ellison, yeah, one of his stories was in season two. Um, Life Hutch, you know the one where there's a space fighter pilot who buys a farm but manages to survive on a barren asteroid. Barren except for the fact that it's got little life hutches, uh, emergency shelters planted throughout the conflict zone just designed for that contingency. A great little story, that one, and definitely one of the more robotic ones. And J.G. Ballard as well. Uh, He did that um, Drown Giant story, which uh, Tim Miller worked on, uh, directed for the... um, for the series in uh, season uh, two, two, I think. Anyway, one of the seasons. Uh, I get them mixed up because I binge-watched two of them. Uh, you know, so season three has got more Neil Asher, uh, more John Scalzi, Alan Baxter, and also Bruce Sterling too. So, you know, this is a, a show that you want to check out for just for that particular content. Now, we're going to continue on looking at that one. It's streaming on Netflix, 35 episodes across three seasons. Just saying how many great authors' work have been uh, adapted for the stories in this show. It's got a pretty good voice actor cast too, with, amongst others, Rosario Dawson from Star Trek Voyager, Craig Ferguson himself, noted late, 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 late night show host, so a good mate of um, Doctor Who, Peter Capaldi, was in a band with him once. And, of course, we've played those tracks <laughs> at least once on Zero G. Dan Stevens there in the voice cast. Fred Tadisikor, who's been in so many voice casts for Marvel and DC animated shows. Seth Green, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Michael B. Jordan, and even Stephen Pacey. Who's Stephen Pacey? Is, uh, well, he used to play... Uh, Oh, Del Tarrant in the Black Seven series, in the uh, later series of that solid British dystopic space opera. It's got a pretty solid, speaking of which, cast of directors, uh, Tim Miller himself, the showrunner, and David Fincher as well, who's got one of the uh, episodes in the third season under his belt. All right, so still looking at Love, Death and Robots. Um, Again, it's also got a, a very wide range of contributing animation studios, which means you can watch the episodes and the styles. Never, There's never one that's the same after the other one. Pretty much like Triple R, actually, when you come to think of it. If you don't like one in particular or it doesn't strike your fancy, in another 15, 20 or 30 or so minutes... There'll be a, a different one entirely. So you've got Blur Studios in there, uh, Unit Image, Red Dog Culture House. Not only Sony Pictures, Image Works, not only different animation studios, but wide ranging across the planet too. I particularly appreciated that. I, I felt very much like I was watching something completely different for each one. Not that the seasons don't have particular tones for each one, and that is very obvious too. Um, season one, there's more what I would call uh, erotic, gross-out horror. They seem to get the range a bit better in the second season. And this third one, it, it's very slick. It's very much of a, uh, a more complete season, I feel. But, you know, sometimes it takes time to shake these things out, especially with an anthology series because each one of them are different. Um, they will have a, a default, as I was saying earlier on, a sort of a Black Mirror 
um, cautionary tone to many of the things, but uh, oh, I guess they're not going to be doing too many utopic series or episodes of it at the moment. Although there's a couple of ones that actually uh, have um, uh, happy endings for certain characters in them, um, <laughs> not necessarily ones to the benefit of mankind or humanity, but nevertheless there, there are some uh, more upbeat ones in it. If we go back to drilling down, so to speak, on some of the episodes of Love, Death and Robots, season three. Now, in this season, there are multiple stories, as with the other one, uh, the other two seasons. And in this case, some of the ones are pretty horrific, and that was one of those. Now, the way that Netflix has got this set up is that they play the episodes in different orders at random. I think there's like four or five different orders. And the order that I've seen them in is the one that I will discuss them in. It's just a, an idea of changing things up. According to Netflix, they are not, repeat, not pivoting off mind data about your preferences. <laughs> well, I have to take that at face value because, you know, I'm not a robot. Anyway... Uh, Jill Bora is the first episode in which heavily armed and armoured knights ride noisily through a forest by a vast lake and river system. Uh, noisily, not so much for one of their number, who is actually deaf. So they kind of pivot from his uh, oral point of view to ours as the audience so suddenly everything goes silent I thought it was a a good dodge in this one Uh, there is something watching this band of paladins as they ride along and it turns out to be a I think it might be a robot like but it's kind of like crossed with a banshee and has some literally killer dance moves to enthrall and entrap its pursuers and the knights go wild and kill each other as they struggle to reach the creature across the lake but the siren song doesn't lure our ostensible hero to his death because he can't hear it so the hyperkinetic action continues as he tries to escape this siren of the deeps i think it's actually a really strong episode this one it's gloriously animated beautifully designed and quite unsettling as many of the love deaf and robots stories are and that one is called uh, Jill Boa now that one is in season three as I was saying and it is by directed by um, Alberto Milego and I don't think that one actually comes from a a story that's been adapted it reminded me a little bit of uh, Werner Herzog's um, Agira Wrath of God just from the way it all plays out and from the the armour and everything that the uh, the knights are wearing. All right, so into episode two, which is called uh, Involted Halls. It's um, basically a group of special operations soldiers and they're exploring a tunnel system looking for um, hostages being taken by insurgents. So, gosh... Uh, particularly relevant today. However, they find the insurgents dead, really, really quite dead. And, uh, well, 
It's all about uh, modern warfare taking on the elder gods, as in some of H.P. Lovecraft kind of megalithic scale stuff. Again, this is quite a scary one, and you know you want to not um, have the children watching for this one. It uh, all ends in a particularly Cthulhu, that's who, fashion, at least that's what I thought. And that's by directed by Jerome Chen, and that's one of the ones with um, Alan Baxter's uh, talents adding to it. Another one is by Neil Asher, and who else? <laughs> Actually, it's called uh, Mason's Rats. And we played a track from that earlier on, Uncrating the TT-15. And that refers to a scorpion-like mobile assault robot created by a vermin removal company called TrapTech. Now, this is... When I say a scorpion-like robot, (laughs) if you are a fan of Neil Asher's work, you will know that scorpion drone combat machine from several of his uh, stories, including one novel. Uh, So it's kind of funny to see it here. Mason is a Scottish farmer who's trying to protect his barn from marauding rats. Now, the thing is, this is a science fiction story, so the rats have actually evolved a bit and uh, start um, repurposing some of the anti-rat technology that's levied against them. It becomes this quite epic battle. Just a piece of fairly gory fun, but, you know, not a bad little story in that one. Mason's Rats. Uh, Another one that I... Well, some of these I didn't, don't know if I actually enjoyed them, but I appreciated them for their craft, shall we say, in some cases. Uh, now, I played just before another track, which is from Bad Travelling. And this is the David Fincher-directed one. Again, it's written by Neil Asher originally. I think uh, John Scalzi adapted some of his own ones into screenplays, but uh, nobody else as far as I know. And that was the one with a a giant man-eating crustacean called a thanopod. And it boards uh, this biological harvesting sailing ship on another world, so we're not on Earth, and creates a a kind of a, you know, last voyage of the Demeter as it wants them to take it to an inhabited island where it can rampage to its heart's content because it is a giant crab and humans are on the menu. So... Lots of icky stuff in this one. Even its mode of communications with its poor victims is entirely gruesome. You might want to blink if you're watching this one. It is definitely a horror story with a moral compass point to it as well, which actually directs the axis of voyaging in the story. I thought that was kind of an interesting take on that. Expect no less from David Fincher and Neil Asher. Bad travelling. Well, not too many other stories in this one. I think they they went for some of the longer ones in this long, longest ideas. Swarm by Bruce Sterling. So we've got this vast asteroid field um, with a kind of a, a hive at the centre of it, a hive colony. Uh, with the uh, eponymous swarm inside of it. Uh, Humans and extraterrestrials exchanging information 
and there's a human study researcher being dropped off at this hive. There's already one scientist there already. So it's some kind of space nest and there are some former spacefaring races that have also been there to study the swarm and things have happened to them. So there is, of course, an alien queen in this, literally at the heart of the nest. It's a near-perfect organic system. The new doctor who's come in to study it wants to exploit it. Uh, the one who was there initially, well, um, not so keen on that. They've had time to assimilate and perhaps be assimilated into the culture of the swarm. Uh, I thought this was a particularly strong story. It reminded of something me, that I would have expected to see on the uh, late great science fiction series, The Expanse. And if you've never seen The Expanse, once again I say it is an exceptionally good science fiction space series. Now, finished its run, uh, shuffled very quickly to its conclusion when they cancelled it. Kind of wondering if they could have actually gone much further with it without changing track completely because that's kind of where the books go. But whatever, I digress. All right, so uh, that episode is called The Swarm. Now, there's an episode... Uh, which is called Kill Team. Again, very apt description. There's a CIE, CIE, CI, <laughs> yes, CAE, Council of Adult Education. No, it is the CIA, Kill Team, that's been tasked with investigating a problem, shall we say. Um, all right, let's, let's define it for you, a cyber grizzly bear. Before you can say cocaine bear... They're out there in the not-so-wilderness as they discover a covert operations base. And in this area, they have to fight this cyber grizzly bear, which proves to be something of a bear of a task. There's a new meaning to the terms. There's a bear in there. They have to team up with a rather cute little attack bot in the weapons cache in this base too. There is a totally out outrageously monstrous battle with the creature. Yeah, this is probably one of the more adolescent-type stories, but, you know, is what it is. I mentioned before that uh, Tim Miller provided the original story idea for Night of the Mini Dead, and this uses that uh, technique that you can do on with your videos or your photographs of making them look like miniatures, you know, that one, that particular filter. Uh, and this is put towards good, terribly good use in depicting a zombie apocalypse on a very small scale. <laughs> it all goes, begins in a graveyard. There's a liaison between a couple there, which for some reason triggers a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, so <laughs> it's one of those things, small scale, writ large, but then again, ultimately very small again. The episode, The Very Pulse of the Machine, is one of my favourites from this Season of Love, Death and Robots. There are two astronauts travelling in a rover across the surface of a planet, which is to say I.O. You know, I.O., I.O., it's off to Jove I go. It is the moon of Jupiter that's got intensely volcanically active surface due to its close proximity to the mighty world and also because of the magnetic field from Jupiter, which plays into the plot too. I thought particularly appreciated that. 
there is some kind of um, I.O. quake and we end up with one of the astronauts dead and one with a lot of damage and running out of oxygen. And so she is forced to try and get back to their lander. They were in a rover that was about you know, 40 k's from the lander and she's trying to get back to that. So yes, shades of the Martian, but she does not have time to grow potatoes. She's very high from her suit's morphine, the drug feed that's been keeping the pain away from her because she's broken her arm. Uh, or is it something else that's causing the hallucinations that she's undergoing? And are they indeed hallucinations? It's a really strong story with this one, with a little bit of um, ambiguity to it. I very much appreciate it. And the artwork reminded me uh, a little bit of something that the, uh, the late... Artiste Mobius would have done this one. I'm not saying too much about the artwork in this, but as I did mention at the start when we were looking into Love, Death and Robots into its sort of into its guts under the hood, that they're all different. Each one's um, artistic palette because they're taken from different animation studios, and this one's no exception. All right, now there is uh, another episode called uh, Three Robots Exit Strategy, and that is the one that is the sequel to the uh, Three Robots one from the first season. And it's basically uh, three robots who are checking out the devastated remnants of post-apocalyptic Earth passing humorous commentary upon all of the many situations that they find as they journey across the planet, which culminates in something that is very edge of the moment in terms of billionaires trying to escape off-world. I can't tell you where this is all going to because it's just exceptionally funny. (laughs) At least I laughed. Don't know what that says about me. And that one's from a John Scalzi script as well. Uh, don't look away in the last couple of minutes because you'll miss the gag. <laughs> all right, that's Love, Death and Robots Season 3. It's third season, 35 episodes across all three seasons. Green lit for a fourth season and you can catch up with it on Netflix where it is streaming. And you will likely get a different Um, order of episodes to the one that I saw because they're deliberately varying them for each watcher, which is kind of strange when you think about it. I'm not quite sure what the purpose of it is apart from changing things up. Ah, well, more experimental stuff. And that's what this anthology series was doing, and I thought quite well. Uh, Not for kids, though, so beware. It is an adult uh, animated production. Triple R. Now, every now and then, we stumble across a movie that's just plain fun to watch. Uh, I'm thinking of Palm Springs, uh, Love and Monsters, Colossal. A lot of animated ones often end up that way. We take a punt on Nimona, Red Panda, Encanto, The Book of Life, or Soul. So many of those. And so too with The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which is a 2022 US-American action comedy film. And it's on Netflix, directed by Tom Gormican. It's also available on physical media too by now, if you can find physical media. 
Cool McCann is also known for Ghosted from 2017, which was a television show uh, which featured um, two actors, Craig Robinson, who was Doug the Pontiac Bandit from Doug, Doug the Pontiac Bandit Judy, I should say, from Brooklyn Nine Nine. Nine Nine! <laughs> and Adam Scott as his polar opposite. They were investigating paranormal phenomena. And I think they ended up um, doing about one season of that one before it got canned. It was also known, that is to say, Gore McCann, the director, for That Awkward Moment, which is a bromance comedy drama. And that was his directorial debut, which had um, Zac Efron in it and Michael B. Jordan and uh, Jessica Lucas, amongst others. Now, he's written, co-written the screenplay for Unbearable Weight with Kevin Etienne, another US-American screenwriter and TV show producer, was one of the writers' stable for uh, The Late Show of David Letterman. Went on to be a screenwriter and producer working on Reaper, Scrubs and Desperate Housewives. Won a Golden Globe for one of his productions once. So, as I was saying, this movie is basically being John Malkovich for Nicolas Cage. <laughs> so, you know, not a uh, an unworthy aspiration when you think about it. Uh, now, Cage plays a fictionalised version of himself in this one. So, yeah, uh, you're also thinking of uh, My Name is Bruce and maybe The Last Action Hero and uh, JCVD, John Claude Van Damme, ones where the actor has played themselves on screen, usually to some kind of comic effect because, you know, hey, that's the, pretty much the name of the game that you're going with these things. And certainly never deployed more effectively than here in this movie. Nicholas Cage is on record <laughs> as much as any think that Nicholas Cage ever contributes to being actually nailed down on record. Uh, he said that he, he continuously reinvents himself in his movies, and you can see that. You know, this is definitely a fact, uh, and he does it thanks to advice given to him by David Bowie to never get comfortable. Well, <laughs> that is the case here. His character is on the creative artistic skids. In this, as he's beginning to doubt his career arc and is actually running into a bit of a, a job dry spell, we see him get knocked back right at the start of this movie to appear in a production that he really wants to be in. So parallel to this, because what we've got here is a bit of a biopic with an action thriller pasted into it in a meta way that is a hoot to watch. Uh, two masked men break in and attack a couple who are watching a Nicolas Cage movie and uh, they, they kidnap uh, their daughter. And that will run parallel to the entire story. So, you know, we cut to Nicolas Cage trying to get a job, a part, that is. And uh, we find that he's very concerned about his career, so much so that he's talking to Nicky Cage, which is... Uh, presumably CGI euphoned Nick Cage, who appears in various scenes to G him up and to give him a bit of a morale boost. I kind of read this as being uh, Cage's ego, uncaged. Um, if you want to know where the younger one's particularly reference from, there's, um, is his name Terry Wogan, um, an interviewer on uh, British television, I think. 
And there's an interview online with Cage from that era, and he is absolutely off the leash in that. <laughs> you know, the sort of thing that uh, Tom Cruise would have gotten in trouble for. Nicholas Cage just, not without effort, carries off with a great deal of <sighs> zealous, bizarro panache. So he's in dire straits here. He's having family problems. He's not relating to his daughter in any fashion that she appreciates. Uh, he is, oh gosh, the ultimate bad dad in this story in terms of, well, he shows up free sheets to the wind at a birthday party for a commandeers a piano and proceeds to sing this god-awful song that he wrote to her about uh, watching a sunset together. The ingredients are there, but oof, he just totally messes that up and his ex-wife in the story is not particularly happy with him because of that. Uh, you know, This is a sort of movie where they'll show Nick Cage undergoing a therapy session and then cut to his daughter being forced to sit there and listen to it as well because it's all about Cage. I do hasten to add that this is really... A lot of this has got nothing to do with Nicolas Cage's actual personality. It's this very fictionalised version. You know, at least this is my understanding of it. He's a much nicer guy than this. I think, from what I've seen. I don't know. Maybe it's all true. No, no, this is not Galaxy Quest. All right, so let's have a, a track here once we've set the plot up. Uh, but first I will tell you that... so in. In the uh, natural consequence of all of this, uh, when his agent, played by Neil Patrick Harris, by the way, uh, tells him that um, he's got uh, a gig lined up at a billionaire's birthday party, played by Pedro Pascal, um, he eventually says, yeah, all right, I'll be in that. And you know how this works. You never go off on a boat to one of these things. Uh, it's all going to go horribly wrong. So there you go. I've given you the, uh, the basic plot line of... The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Hi, this is Corey McAbee from Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 R FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. All right, so we are looking at The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. A, well, not a new film, but one from 2022 now, which I've just caught up with watching it on Netflix. And it is directed by a guy who hasn't done too many movies before, but enough to know what he's doing. And certainly, I think he's done it very well in this one, Tom Gormick-Khan. Great comedy movie is this one. Now, what can we say about Nick Cage that hasn't been said before in this being John Malkovich of a personal film? Well... You know, in terms of all of the different genres he's crossed over in his big career, there's a lot of science fiction and fantasy ones in there. Peggy Sue Got Married, which is lightweight fantasy. Uh, Time Travel 1 from 86. Vampire's Kiss in 88. Of course, he has also been related to vampires. In fact, he's been Dracula in the recent Renfield movie. Uh, Face Off in 1997, which was about a face transplant. Uh, another fantasy in 97, City of Angels, which was had basically uh, Vim Vendor's 1987 Wings of Desire fluttered over it. Uh, the 2000 fantasy, The Family Man, the National Treasure movies with their weird sort of uh, Matthew Riley-esque temples of complexity, puzzles to be solved and 
conspiracies unraveled. Great movie, so it's The Wicker Man in 2006, not The Bees, a remake of the classic one. Uh, perhaps ill-advised that one. And then, of course, there's Next in 2004, which is Next. And, uh, oh, actually, it's 2007. And that had Nicolas Cage, Juliana Moore in it too, as well as Peter Falk, uh, based rather loosely upon a K. Dick, Philip K. Dick short story, The Golden Man. Uh, of course, the Ghost Rider films, at least one of which was filmed here in Melbourne, in fact, round the corner from where I used to work. Go down there and visit the, the set after work. Uh, 2007 and 11, Ghost Rider and Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. So there he is in the Marvel universe, more or less. And they also filmed um, Alex Preuss's Knowing down here in 2009, another science fiction thriller uh, dealing with um, uh, predicting an apocalypse. Uh, Kick Ass, and his uh, 2010 sort of Batman-style outing. Uh, a little bit like Michael Keaton's Birdman, but less meta. Uh, Season of the Witch, um, medieval um, one with ghosts, sorry, with witches in it from the title. Uh, Left Behind, which was kind of like a, a rapture one. Pay the Ghost, Mum and Dad, horror stories. Mandy, which was a great horror one. Um, does a lot of voice work too. He's played Superman in uh, Teen Titans, the Go to the movies, and also, of course, Spider Man Noir in Spider Man Into the Spider Verse. Between Worlds, the excellent HP Lovecraft horror movie, The Color in Space, or is it Out of Space? My notes are indistinct there. Uh, Renfield, as I said recently, and of course, the uh, uh, that's the Dracula movie, the comedy one. Uh, Prisoners of the Ghostland and The Flash, where he actually gets to play Superman on screen. More or less, he finally made it. Good on him. Up, up and away. A Cal L of a performance there. Now, in this one, we see Cage basically uh, on the creative skids and he ends up taking an invitation to a billionaire's birthday party to go and be there. The billionaire, played by Pedro Pascal, has an ulterior motive in that he's got a script that he would love Nicolas Cage to read and then, of course, to uh, to take on the role in his movie. Uh, Cage ends up with a further complication as he becomes mixed up in a kidnapping and a CIA operation being levelled against Pedro Pascal's character in this story. So it is a really fine piece, this. One of the... Great comedic movies to be based upon the idea of self-worship. And, and look, it works so well because Cage is heavily into the idea and so is Pedro Pascal. Great performance from Pedro. Uh, when he speaks, you believe him. He's that kind of actor. They soon establish that uh, Pedro's a real super fan of Cage, um, quite so in a way that is both hilarious and incredibly creepy. Um, they find that they've got a lot, in, lot to uh, to worship in common about Cage's ego, in the story at least. Uh, they both love Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and a very surprising <laughs> movie turns out to be their absolute favourite together. Uh, you know, Pedro was so excited when Nick says that they should make a movie together. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it drives them to all sorts of extremes. 
So, you know, you've got this movie within a movie, within a kidnapping, within another story, within this amazing kind of fake biopic, which extends to having uh, not one but two sets of actresses playing Cage's ex-wife and daughter, respectively. So we've got Sharon uh, Horgan playing Olivia Henson, uh, who's Cage's ex-wife in this, who really needs Nick to get his act together, not the least for their daughter, uh, who is played at first in this by Lily Mo Sheen. Uh, yes, she is uh, Martin Sheen and... Um, not Martin Sheen, uh, Michael Sheen's and Kate Beckinsdale's daughter. Um, but in this, she plays Cage's daughter. Um, she is the unfortunate person who has to sit in on uh, Nick's therapy sessions and listen to him playing bad songs at her own birthday party. Um, we've seen her before, actually. She played um, uh, a young Celine in Underworld Evolution, so playing a, a younger version of her mother, Kate Beckinsale, in that. All right, so, look, there's a bunch of other people in this. They're all well-chosen. They fit into the, the plot quite well. They all interact exactly, no perfectly, where they should be. Neil Patrick Harris playing Richard Fink, <laughs> Cage's agent in this. Um, yeah, I, you know, the superimposition of the action movie plot on Cage's existential crisis in this, it just works a treat. It is exactly where it needs to be. I laughed all the way through this movie. Um, it did remind me a little bit of uh, They Call Me Bruce, so there is a little bit of Bruce Campbell sort of nonsense in this, I feel, uh, as, as they try and get Cage to stand up and be the action hero that he's always playing. <laughs> There's some great lines in this. I can't stand talky comedies. It's got to have something to drive it forwards, they say at one stage. Petro, Pedro Pascal earnestly imply, implores um, Cage to escape a perilous situation. Uh, as he flings himself down on the ground and offers himself as a human stool. <laughs> oh, dear. As Nick says, it's pretty hard to find an audience nowadays unless it's a Marvel movie or a Star Wars. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. So the way that this shift gears from action movie to a more weird sort of buddy-buddy romance, bromance thing, it underlines how silly action movie editing can be. And so there's a further level of complexity there. Love this to pieces, uh, the unbearable weight of massive talent. Look, it'll help a lot if you've already watched a, a few Nicolas Cage movies, but to be honest, who has not <laughs> in this world of ours? All right, so I'll give it a... a uh, yeah, he's Nick Cage rating out of the... <laughs> yeah, no, maybe zero-G list of options. That's about it for zero-G for today. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.